for a small ski area, we're not dealing with million dollar budgets as far as what we can improve upon. It's really just seeing what we have and what we can smartly spend our money on so that we can open next year. Never had I thought that we would be adding three, three and a half runs to the area. But because of the influx of business that we've had, I've been thinking to myself, man, this is how like the big ski areas must feel to actually be able to like make some of these improvements. Like this feels great. If the customers invested in us, why not invest back? Welcome to the storm. host, Stuart Winchester, back to Wisconsin today. Huge respect for Midwest skiing here at Storm HQ, and I have a really cool story to share with you today. First, a quick favor. Please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. There, you will find an article that accompanies this and every podcast that provides loads of additional context on our conversation, among many, many other things. Look, the podcast is just a small part of the storm. The heart of this whole operation is the Storm Skiing Newsletter, where I am breaking down the world of lift surf skiing with a minimum of 100 articles every single year. And you will get them all delivered straight to your inbox when you subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Skiing Newsletter instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter, Instagram, or threads at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Trollhagen, a quick word from my sponsor, Profile Search International. Coming off a second consecutive season of record attendance, the ski industry has never been more competitive, and neither has the war for the best talent. How will you ensure that your organization is positioned to compete with the best and deliver results to your customers and stakeholders? Profile Search International is the only executive search and recruitment firm in the world that is 100% focused on the ski industry. They have been placing hundreds of leaders in roles that truly drive results at the best and most progressive ski areas for more than 30 years. Profile Search International uses their intimate understanding of skiing and related industries and of the candidates worldwide to align talent with your needs and goals. With offices in the US and Canada, they find and negotiate with the right leaders for your team. Reach out to them directly at profilesearch.com or contact them by email or phone or send me a note and I will forward it on to the amped up and ready to charge team at Profile Search International. That's profilesearch.com. Episode 139, Jim Rochford Jr., General Manager and Owner of Trollhagen, Wisconsin. We are looking at another huge summer of ski area improvements across North America, with more than 60 new or relocated lifts going up, and more than half a dozen expansion projects. New terrain is scheduled to come online as some big-time players this fall, including Aspen, Steamboat, and Keystone in the West and Sugarloaf and Loon Mountain in the east. Expansion is a big deal, is my point here. And while there are some big lift projects going off in the Midwest this year, including new six-packs at the Highlands, Lutzen, and Snow River, there is only one terrain expansion in the region, Trollhagen, Wisconsin. Now, unless you are from the immediate area, you're probably unfamiliar with this family-owned bump. But it is a really cool spot, which has been run by the Rochford family since the 1960s. And lately, the place has been rolling, with a new Partec quad going up in 2021, and another new Partec quad going in this summer that will serve that expansion. To make the story even more interesting, Trollhagen has, since 2012, been in direct competition with nearby Afton Alps, which is owned by Vail Resorts and acts as a gateway into the Epic Pass. Instead of going on the defensive, Trollhagen has gotten creative, joining the Indy Pass and embracing its role as a family-run alternative to the corporate mountain nearby. It's an important story, and one I think you will really like hearing, whether you are a Midwestern skier or not. Let's go. My guest today is the owner and general manager of Trollhagen, Wisconsin. Situated just an hour north of Minneapolis, Trollhagen sits on 280 vertical feet, served by nine lifts. 
Trollhagen was the first ski area in America to open for the 2022-23 to ski season, spinning lifts on October 19th. For the 2023-24 to ski season, Trollhagen plans to open a major expansion with new trails served by a brand new fixed grip quad. He is the third generation owner of Trollhagen. Jim Rochford Jr. is my guest. Jim, welcome to the storm. I am so looking forward to talking Midwest and Wisconsin skiing with you this morning. How are you doing today? Nice. Well, we're recording this in July, but let's start with a look back at the 2022 to 23 ski season. How was your winter at Trollhagen? Much like other areas, it was an absolute record-shattering year for us at, at Trollhagen. As far as skier visits, it was spectacular. So you saw a surge during COVID, like a lot of ski areas, especially a lot of ski areas in the Midwest. Have you maintained that momentum? Are you seeing year-over-year increases since that 2020 to 21 winter? Yeah, that COVID year was was a record-breaking year for us. And the year after, we actually saw what I expected, a little bit of less visitation than we had the year prior. Uh, the year prior, it was like perfect weather. The weekends were always perfect. But we increased the number of pass holders going from the COVID year to the year after. And then last year, it was the same. The weather was perfect. And once again, like we increased our just the number of pass holders. So that pass holder number has really just been growing and growing uh, every year since that COVID year. And, and last year was just something spectacular. What do you think is behind that increase in season passes, Jim? Do you, do you think it's folks who are rediscovering skiing? Do you think that they just got out more frequently and realized the season pass is a better value? Do you think it's sort of these mega passes that are normalizing the idea of season pass? What, what do you think is driving that for Trollhagen in particular? Well, I think for us in particular... We really try to focus on our customer's experience as that's like our, our A1 number one goal is making sure that that customer experience is as, as good as it possibly can be. And so because of that, during that COVID year and since then, we've actually limited the number of daily ticket sales that we will allow, or I shouldn't even say ticket sales, the number of people through the gate so that everyone who does come out is... You know, they're not waiting 20, 30 minutes on, for a lift. So even on the busiest Saturday of the year, you should only be waiting 10, 15 minutes max. Uh, and we've designed our, you know, kind of the, the way we ticket in, in that way. And I think just getting new customers out, we've just done a really good job of making sure that they want to come back here. Were you able to keep track of folks who maybe came to Trollhagen for the first time or for the first time in a while during that COVID season and then decided to come back? I don't have a specific number on it, but I know like just anecdotally, the same people who would come on, you know, from the city on Thursday nights or Tuesday nights that I had never seen before. And I would see those, like those group of people, those group of guys, six, seven, eight times throughout the ski season. When you say the city, Jim, are you talking about Minneapolis, St. Paul? Is, are there uh, smaller cities nearby? Where do you draw from mostly? Yeah, so uh, we are an hour away from both Minneapolis and St. Paul. And that is kind of what I'm referring to. It's kind of our major metro market. Our biggest draws are going to be from the, those northern suburbs. But, you know, we were in an interesting situation, especially during the COVID year, because we're right on the border in Wisconsin. And Minnesota was a lot more limited in what they were allowed to do that season. So we had even more visitation from people who would normally go to those southern metro ski areas that would come up here because we could still, you know, have indoor food service and et cetera. So we got a lot of uh, eyeballs that we wouldn't normally get from down in that area. Yeah. And if, if folks aren't familiar with where Trollhagen is, I mean, you are right across the border. I mean, Wild Mountain is just a few minutes away and that's in Minnesota. I mean, exactly how close are you for those who are not familiar with where you are geographically? Oh, sure. Or 15 minutes away from, from Wild Mountain in Minnesota. They're a little bit further north than we are. But from Minnesota, we are five minutes. So Wild Mountain is is an interesting neighbor. They they have a sort of a fun operation up there. Talk about your relationship with Wild Mountain and what it's like to compete against. And also, have I'm sure you have some sort of camaraderie with them. 
Oh, absolutely. They have relatively new ownership over at Wild over the last, uh, I believe, right before that COVID year. Longtime owners sold to another family uh, who now runs that area. And it's, you know, it's very cordial. It's kind of like having the multiple car dealerships and or gas stations all in one spot. You know what I mean? So it kind of gives people an idea of, oh, hey, there's ski areas up that way. And we kind of draw off each other. So I, I think it works well, actually. Uh, there are enough skiers in the metro area for not just us, but there are seven ski areas within Minneapolis-St. Paul that are drivable in a day. So one of the fun traditions that Trollhagen has, as I mentioned in the intro, is this just opening as early as possible. And you also have a nice rivalry with Wild Mountain to see who can spin the lifts first. So you opened, as I mentioned, October 19th this past season. I believe Wild opened that same day. Correct me if I'm wrong. And I think Andy's Towers down the road as well. But how were you able to do this every year? I mean, how do you get things ramped up and open so quickly? Well, hey, we're ready. <laughs> so as soon as October 1 rolls around, the guns are set, everything's out, ready to go. Lifts are ready to go if need be. And then it's just a waiting game for the weather. So just around this area, it just happens to get into the mid to high 20s a little bit sooner than you know the rest of the country, it seems like. So whenever we see that, hey, it might dip into the 20s tonight, then we have guys on who are excited and eager to see if we can't open. And what do you open with? Because it's it's some folks just open with a little strip. I believe you had a little bit more terrain going. What's your goal typically when you open that early? Sure. Our goal is to open with one chair in a full run, uh, which is our basically our marquee run Nissibaken, which is kind of right smack dab center of the middle of the hill. And then right off of that, we have a rope toe that we set up terrain park features and etc. for right next to that. So we're looking when we're opening to get a chairlift and a rope toe. So you do have a nice little rivalry with Wild Mountain there. It's a little bit of a mini version of the A-Basin versus Keystone versus Loveland competition that they have out in Summit County, Colorado every year. Talk about how much fun you have with that and what that's like to try to beat the other one out every year. Oh, absolutely. It, it always is you know, an interesting thing. We always figure that you know, regardless of when we open, they're going to open that same day or even the day before. I mean, honestly, I think they actually turned their rope toe maybe and Andy's as well, maybe a day before us mm, last okay. year. We were the first ones to have a, a chairlift. And and we don't do, like I said, we, we're not looking for just a strip. We're looking for side to side coverage. So why do you do this, Jim? Why is like, what's the story behind this? How long have you been doing it? And and why is Trollhagen committed to opening as early as possible? Sure. So we've been doing it for, so I'm, this is my 32nd year, I believe, working at the ski area. And we've been doing it for as long as I can remember. And it's basically, it's kind of twofold. More people are excited to ski, at least around here in October than they are in beginning of April. You know, it's been a long time. It's been uh, in, in between. They've had the long summer and a lot of the uh, enthusiasts are just looking to get back out there. It's also interesting to say you have skied in October. But it also just gets people back in the mood for skiing. It stimulates season pass sales that we have going on. And any time that we can open the door and get people through just, uh, you know, helps <laughs> helps business. <laughs> so it's definitely important to the business. Just talk about how important that is to your culture and your identity as a ski area. Uh, sure. So I would say that it is pretty important that we, you know, that we do that. It's just something that we've always done. So it's, you know, all of our snowmaking guys and, and maintenance guys, they're excited for it. Like I said, it, even even the staff is more excited for the ski season come around October than they are uh, the end of March. So you open October 19th. You stretch the season 141 days. I believe you had to close a little bit in there between there and in November to refresh stuff because it got a little warm. Open for 141 days total. Close on April 1st and you get a surprise 10 inch snowstorm overnight. So I think from a distance, people might look at this and say, oh, well, if they're going to pull out all the stops to open in October, once they have this nice base built up in April, why not push it to the second, third week in April? Talk about that decision to close April 1st. And, and I think you just alluded to it where folks are not as interested, but talk about that decision and what goes into that and why you close maybe when you still have a base on the mountain. Two reasons is one, if we were just going to be skiing, you know, that one day after that snowstorm, that's doable. However, if you're not going to get freezing weather overnight, if you're talking 
overnights of 30s, it's just not going to hold up and the conditions aren't going to be very good. By that time also, so we're, like like I said, we're a Midwest ski area. And so April is one of the prime times that a lot of our dedicated skiers are making their trips out west. And so our visitation come mid to late March, regardless of condition, just isn't as strong as even maybe the first or second weekend in November. So we really have to take stock into like what is best for the ski area in total, especially when we've been open for over 140 days. Our normal ski season is about 120, 125. Right. Well, that's, that's impressive. What was the difference this year? Early start and strong through March. And honestly, knock on wood, the last number of years, we just haven't missed many days due to either a rain out and or freeze out. Right. So favorable conditions for Mother Nature help, but have you made upgrades to the snowmaking system? Is there something in your infrastructure that is contributing to these longer seasons? Sure. We certainly have. Um, I mean, Mother Nature is kind of the end all be all, but we certainly have upgraded our snowmaking system over the last even five years. We've had several capital investments, including our new terrain expansion, which will be fully automated when that is up and running this fall. So yeah, it's something that as a owner operator, you can't neglect your snowmaking. You don't have a ski area without one. So you certainly have to put some some dollars backing snowmaking. When I when I first kind of came on full time, I'm thinking that we probably had a lot of old snowmaking infrastructure, uh, a lot of old guns, but we've been chipping away at it, uh, and that's kind of what you do when you're when you're a small ski area. You don't just have a summer where you're spending several million dollars. Uh, so you kind of really have to chip away at it as, as much as you can. So making it to April is great for any ski area, particularly in the Midwest. Once in a while, I know Wild Mountain, and I believe you've done it at Trollhagen, you pop back open for a rail jam. Is that something that you've done in the past? Uh, We have done it off and on in the past. Typically, we would do it a week after the ski season ended because we would have a lot of snow still in like our terrain park area. It really depends on what the weather conditions are like and such. I mean, you just never know with, with April. And nowadays, we've just planned it or have been able to keep our snow so the entire area is open. Because once again, staff included, by the time that uh, mid-April rolls around, are, are a lot more fatigued than they are when uh, late October rolls around. Do you run a rope toe when you do those rail jams or is it hike up? Uh, we would run a rope. And you did not do one this year, is that right? We did not. Did you consider one? Was there a reason you didn't? Or is it just something that if you if you have the time and resources and the inspiration, you do it? And if not, you don't. I think that's probably more right on there. If, if we have the, the resources, aka manpower, and we have the weather condition, then we would consider it. But as we have been changing into just being this area that is just seeing more visitation than we've ever seen before. More of our, our time and resources are going into just the full-scale operation of the, of the business. And because of that, it's allowed us to be able to take on more projects and have more capital expenditure or capital investments, which once again, takes manpower and resources. People forget, you know, we're uh, you know a ski area in the Midwest, but we only have 18 full-time staff, which is probably double what it was 10 years ago. So business is great. You mentioned you're doing a big expansion. We'll get that get into that in a moment. I want to linger on this for a moment here, Jim, because you said you draw mostly from Minneapolis, St. Paul. And about a decade ago now, Vail Resorts bought Afton Alps, which means that they brought the Epic Pass into Minneapolis, St. Paul region for the first time where a local skier could have those laps at Afton Alps, then take their Epic Pass, go out to Colorado, go out to Utah, go out to California for a week-long vacation. What was your reaction when this first happened? When the Epic Pass first came into Minneapolis, how much of a threat did you view that as? And then what actually happened from a competitive point of view once Vail entered the market? Sure. So I would say that we were apprehensive would probably be the best word on the purchase, You know, not knowing how that is all going to play out. But honestly, it really hasn't affected us as far as visitation has gone. You know, there's a difference, and I'm not saying good or bad, but there's a difference between the way a corporation handles a ski area and the way that, you know, the mom and pop places handle their ski areas when 
person who's the decision maker is selling you a ticket. So it really hasn't affected us. In fact, I would say we, we, we haven't seen any negative impact due to their uh, coming into the market. So it's for us, I'm not, I can't speak for other areas that are a little bit closer. Afton's still about 50 minutes from us, but they are really close to the city. Some people would have to drive right past them to get to us, but some people still do. Did the presence of the Epic Pass in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, did that play at all into your decision to join the Indy Pass back in 2019? Trahagan was an early adopter of this pass. And, and obviously, once you join this pass, your pass holders for a discounted price can buy an Indy Pass. And then they also get two days at Lutzen and Granite Peak and Buck Hill and all these other ski areas in the Midwest. Indy's Midwest roster is just phenomenal. Did that play into it at all? And if not, why did you join the Indy Pass? Yeah, no, it, it certainly did. When Vail came in and they had their Epic Pass, I actually tried to reach out to the uh, you know the Aspen group and see if there was any chance that we could get on their pass or anything of that nature. I didn't really hear much back. They weren't interested too much in, in adding Midwest ski areas, which is fine. But when Doug Fish called me up, and was talking about his indie pass. I mean, you know, you never know. It was a cold, it was a cold call, so you're always kind of, you know, skeptical. But you know, he was a, a real good sales guy, a guy that I I respect a lot. Uh, he was upfront about everything, about all the costs before even going into his sales pitch. And the way that he presented the idea that there would be several people in the metro market, but they would all be not necessarily right next to each other, and that he wasn't going to oversaturate markets. I thought it was a spectacular idea. And we've gone from, you know, seeing it being just the year, I believe it was the year before COVID, being kind of just a, oh, hey, look, there's another indie Pass, to it being uh, a good percent of our daily ticket sale. Some smaller operators I've spoken to, Pat's Peak in New Hampshire is one example of this, found that a very large percentage of their indie Pass visits came from folks who had never visited the ski area before. And New Hampshire is similar to that area of Minnesota, Wisconsin, where you have quite a few ski areas, 10 to 12 ski areas just clustered around the city. Have you found the same either anecdotally or through any data you've collected that the Indy Pass is is sort of creating this menu where skiers say, okay, well, I can ski these eight places in Minneapolis or Minnesota and Wisconsin. Let me just check them off and coming and checking out Trollhagen for the first time. Yeah, no, absolutely. I believe it absolutely has. I can't think of any of, for instance, our pass holders, our general pass holders who decided, oh, hey, you know what? I'm not going to get a pass in Trollhagen. I'm just going to get an Indy Pass. What they do is they, you know, add the Indy Pass on so they can go to other areas. And so I think the same thing has happened kind of in reverse. So if there are other ski areas around, you know, Welch, Wild, Afton, whatever, you can pick up that Indy Pass and go to all these other local ski areas. On top of that, we have a very good, uh, or I should say a very strong ski number in the southern Wisconsin because of all those areas down there. And so we'll actually pick up some traffic from down in that area that we normally wouldn't have because, I mean, honestly, you're not going to get too many people from Madison, Chicago, and Milwaukee coming up just to Trollhagen for the weekend. But if they can come up and hit Trollhagen and then go to Spirit, then that's kind of the way to go. Or not Spirit, I apologize, I meant Lutzer. <laughs> right. Well, was, Spirit is actually also on the Indy Pass. And, uh, you know, I, I actually hit Spirit when I was out there this winter, the day before I swung through Trollhagen. And what an awesome view that place has. Have you been up there? Oh, I know. Is there something? Yeah. Yeah. I was not expecting that. That is, uh, for listeners who haven't been there, is just a spectacular setting. It's sitting over this river uh, up over there, over uh, Duluth. So let's get into the history of Trollhagen here a little bit, Jim. The Scaria opened in 1950. You are, as I mentioned, the third generation owner of the ski area. When did your family arrive as owners? Sure. So it originated in, like you said, in 1950 by Wally Peterson and Lee Rogers. They're a mailman and a farmer, I believe. Wow. I know, right? And they That's had cool. started the year before, about three miles north of us in St. Croix Falls, Wisconsin, which is right on the river. They had had like a little hill with a, with a rope tow. It was kind of for family and friends. And then the year after that, or a couple of years after that, they came looking for something they could make more permanent and make them do a business. And so they traveled, you know, all the way down here to Dresser and uh, found a plot of farmland that they liked and developed Trollhagen. 
my family, my grandfather and grandmother were actually both dentists in St. Paul and they were a part of like this investment group. And so in the mid sixties, the two original owners were looking to sell the place and the investment group come and came and took a look at it, but the group itself wasn't interested. But my grandfather thought, oh man, wouldn't it be cool to have a party place like a ski area? And so he purchased in 1967 and it has been in the family since then. My father, Jim Sr., started working here when he was 17 when they purchased it. And he basically ran day-to-day operation from the time, I'd say from the mid-70s to some blended year in between when uh, he stopped working and I started doing more. Were, were your grandparents skiers? No, they oh, weren't. Right. They, yeah, like I said, my grandfather in, enjoyed the bar life that Trollhagen has to offer. Did, did they learn to ski once they owned a ski area? Yeah, they okay. learned to ski. I wouldn't call them good skiers. <laughs> but it was like his weekend getaway. So they had a cabin nearby and they would do their you know, their dentist thing Monday through Friday and then come out here and do the stuff for the weekend. How about your father? Was he a skier? Uh, he skied a little bit better than, uh, <laughs> than my grandparents, but he's not necessarily an avid skier either. He was just you know, a savvy business guy who really enjoyed the mechanical side of working at the ski area and you know he was involved with putting some of our main lifts up in the 70s we had a two-man it was put up in i believe it was uh in the late 60s which we actually just recently took down and replaced and then two four-man lifts that were put in in the early and mid 70s so if your dad started there when he was 17 i imagine you came along at some point after that so talk about growing up at a ski area and what what that was like sure it's an interesting question because you know when you're growing up you just figure that that's normal right Right. like (laughs) so you know i I really didn't know it was any different until i got a little bit older and you know met my wife and she thought it was the weirdest thing that she had ever heard of and uh (laughs) so no we live right here on premises growing up we have a house that's literally a stone's throw away from the main chalet. And so if I ever wanted to go skiing, it was just going out the basement door with your gear on and going out. It was a great place to grow up. Ski area is an interesting place. You know, it's just like a theme park, you know, in the Midwest, just set in the winter. Most people are happy to be here. And so it was, uh, it was great. I started working when I was 11, 12 years old. It's been a great experience. Growing, Growing up at a ski area, I think has been just spectacular. And you can see it in other kids that don't necessarily grow up here, like living here like I did, but that you see out here three or four times a week. It's just, uh, you know, everyone's happy to be out in the ski area. So what was that like as a child? I mean, did you just come home from school every day, drop your books and go skiing? Did you ski every day? What, what did your routine look like? Good. So like most kids, when I was really little, I skied a lot, just like I'm talking like elementary school. By the time middle school rolls around, you know, you have it in your backyard and it's like, oh, well, yeah, I could go skiing, but it's, you know, it's just right there. So I I didn't do it for probably from my middle school to to high school years. It would just be off and on recreationally if a friend of mine wanted to come out as well. Otherwise, I wouldn't actually go out all that much. You know, it was just something apparently I might have just been been jaded with. I'd rather, uh, you know, sit and hang out with the friends down the you know, in the snack bar area and we'd take a couple laps and just, just hang out more than anything. So when did you realize that there were other ski areas out there? Ooh, that's a good question. Probably not until I, I hadn't skied another ski area until I was in high school. You know, I, I'd been over to Wild Mountain, and but it really wasn't until I came back to work here full time that we started going out to other ski areas you know, like Welch and, and Lutzen and Granite Peak and Cascade. And but I love going to other skiers and learning from what they have. It's one of the more fun things that a ski uh, operator can do is just, is visit another skier and see how they do things. So you start working there when you're 11, 12 years old. What was your first job? I was a snack bar cashier, just like my children. <laughs> <laughs> what age did you start them? Uh, same. They got, oh, wow. uh, yeah, they got, it's like 13 and 12. So it sounded like it was this wonderland when you were a little kid. You get a little bit over it by the time you're in middle school, high school, but you're still there, you know, 30 whatever years later and you're running the place. What made you decide 
to stick around? Was there a moment? Was, was it just a gradual realization that you wanted to carry on the family legacy? You know, why are you still at Trailhugging today? Another good question. So I actually, I when I was going off to college, I had no intention of, of coming back here to the ski area. I went to the University of Minnesota for a degree in microbiology. And it was around my junior year of college that I was working in a lab that they kind of just placed me in. And I was realizing as I was, you know, pipetting something from one thing to another that the allure of being a uh, epidemiologist was not as grandiose as you would see in like books, like the actual day to day. It just wasn't up my alley. And I was missing the interaction with people and with customers. And so I had to do a lot of soul searching for a couple months as to, hey, what do I really want to do if I don't want to do this? Because in my head, like this is what I had wanted to do for like the past four years. So I decided to take a couple business classes. I didn't want to necessarily finish out my degree in six years. So I finished with a degree. And over that summer, I was just trying to think to myself, what was the most fun I've ever had? Like, what, what would I really enjoy doing with the rest of my life? And that fall, I had heard through the grapevine that the rental shop manager position at Trollhagen was vacated for the upcoming winter. And so I sent a resume into, I mailed it because we, into my mom and dad. Uh, and to which I got a phone call probably a couple of days later going, what in the world is this? And I was like, well, you guys can take a look at it and read it. And if you are interested, we, you can, uh, I'd love to take the job. So they had me out to, to dinner and uh, I think my, my dad was pretty excited about it. My mom was a little, a little hesitant because she wanted something quote unquote better for me to do. You know, I had some odd jobs and did different things growing up, but I just never had as much fun as working at the ski area. What inspired you to mail the resume rather than just calling them up? I don't know. Maybe I'm weird. It was a long time. It was was 20 years ago now. So I have, uh, I'm not sure. Maybe I was afraid just to know what they would, what they would say. Uh, That's a great question that I don't know if I can answer for you, but it worked. So fast forward however long, and you're now running the place. As you reflect back here and, you know, you laid out some of your dad's legacy. He put up those quad chairs and drug the place into the modern era. When you look at this from a long view, what is your father's legacy at Trollhagen? And then what do you see your place? How do you want to build that legacy? And what is your goal? What do you want Trollhagen to look like when you're done with it? Well, I would say, I mean, as far as my dad's legacy, it's, and, uh, and my, my mother actually, who works here too, is kind of like his right hand. So they ran this, both he and my mom ran this place together from, you know, 1980 through, I would say, you know, the mid to late aughts. And it was really, like you said, modernizing the area and, I want to say just keeping the, the ski area going. If you look at the number of ski areas that we had in the metro area or even Minnesota, Wisconsin in the late 60s and the early 70s, I bet half of those are open today. So it's just really having a good business mind and being savvy because like I said, for a small ski area, we're not dealing with million dollar budgets in the summertime as far as what we can improve upon. It's really just seeing what we have and what we can smartly spend our money on so that we can open next year. And so they did a, a really good job of not only obviously keeping the doors open, but being able to improve the amenities that we have here, but keeping the buildings that we have like in really good shape, like our main chalet, which is kind of like an iconic piece to, to Trollhagen here. It looks mostly the same as it did if you were to come out here 40 years ago and just keeping everything up to the standard that it should be. As for myself, you know, this expansion project is probably my stamp. I never had I thought that when I started or even five years ago, that we would be putting up not just one, but two chairlifts and adding three, three and a half runs to the area. That's a pretty big deal. I didn't think it's something that would ever happen, but because of the last number of years and just the influx of business that we've had, I've been thinking to myself in the springs, like, man, this is how like the big ski areas must feel to actually be able to like make some of these improvements. Like this feels Mm -hmm. great. So yeah, so you know, I'm still a young guy. I'm in my early 40s and you know, I'm not 
looking to get out anytime soon. So why not invest this? Uh, the, if the customer's invested in us, why not invest back? So that's basically what we're doing here. So let's talk about this expansion, Jim, because this is a really exciting project. And there's only a handful of ski area expansions in the country each summer. And there's, there's a couple going on this summer. Aspen has a big one. And, and this one at Trollhagen is is really cool. So lay this out for us. What are we getting? Talk about the trails. Talk about the chair. What, what's the, what are you opening this winter? Sure. Let me talk about what we had over in that area. So what we had over in our quote unquote summit expansion area is we had one, what I would call kind of like an old race hill. So it's pretty, I don't want to call it steep, but the pitch is pretty good for racing and it's pretty even the entire way down. Uh, other than that, we had maybe one other kind of run that came around the side of it and then one off to, uh, it's kind of hard to explain because it's kind of the area itself was kind of built up separate from the other portion of the ski area. So it's kind of like the lone stepchild on the left-hand side of the ski area that no one actually ever skis. And mostly because there was a double rope toe to get up to the top. And so due to that double rope, so you actually, you went up one rope and you got off and then you kind of skied over, skated over to the next rope, which you got back on and, and went back up, up to the top. The racing coaches started to hate that back in the probably early aughts, <laughs> although okay. some still liked it because you get a lot of laps. Right. And so we thought to ourselves, man, we could actually get people over there if we put a chairlift up over there, but... I wouldn't want to put a chairlift up over there just for what was basically three runs and three runs, two of which were kind of, you know, they were ho-hum. There's not a whole bunch about it. Out here at Trollhagen, we like to have trees and different undulations, different variations of, of skiing. Just It makes it more fun. So we went over there a couple of years ago and we kind of mapped out what these new runs would look like. And we believe that they should all be black diamond runs. One will be fairly narrow and will be cutting through the trees. Another one will be a little bit more open, but will give you kind of like a lane to go either left or right around a larger bank of trees. And then one, another black diamond that will kind of come around, but all of them do have some pitch to it. I'm not talking, you know, up west pitch. We're talking Midwest pitch. But our maintenance staff, which is a great staff of maintenance guys, like those guys are skiers and snowboarders and if they're excited to develop it and when they're talking about it that they're getting excited about it i know that me being excited about it too is what we're it's valid like it's not just me who thinks that this will be a, a little cool area it's like other people who are skiers snowboarders as well so let's talk about the terrain here you're so you're cutting these new trails you just described do you glade there's no glades on your map necessarily but do folks tend to ski between the trees there and do you do any maintenance in the woods so our quote unquote glade run is that we do have one run called the glade that it does kind of go through the trees between two of our runs, but it is groomed. So it's kind of like a groomer's width that kind of winds through. But as far as glade runs themselves, it really depends. I mean, we don't get a ton of natural snowfall here. 80 inches is kind of like the average. I think we had more last year, but you just never know. And so we don't like kind of push too heavy for people just doing their own sort of glade run. That's why we kind of try to do our own, but people certainly do it, but it's, uh, it's, it's not something that is heavily used here. Most of the youths. So you have 100% snowmaking coverage and 100% lit night skiing. And I believe that you're going to have these new trails lit and snowmaking on them. Will, will both of those elements be ready for 2023 to 24 ski season? Yeah, absolutely. Everything so far is on schedule. Snowmaking infrastructure, chairlift, lights, as far as we believe we are on schedule. Did you name the trails yet? We have named the trails. Do you do you know the names off the top of your head or should I throw those I into the I do know the names off okay. the top of my head. <laughs> However, they have not officially been released oh. yet. And I think my marketing director would have my head if, if I were to say them. All right. Well, I, I will talk to Marsha and see okay. if they're ready when I publish this podcast. Let's talk about the chairlift here, Jim. You're putting up another quad lift. Talk about that lift, what the vertical will be on that and wh where it will load and land. Uh, sure. So it's over in that summit area. We're basically, for people who are familiar with that area, the chair is actually going to run straight up the middle of that hill and there's still be enough that they're basically going to separate that hill into two runs 
which we're going to do basically for racing purposes. So we can have one side be one name, the other side be the other name. And then when we're doing dual courses, we can tell the racers, hey, you're racing on this run and you're racing on this run. And that's mostly what that portion is going to be used for is that's kind of be like our race venue and where high school kids can practice, where our teams can practice and race. So it should get fairly good usage over there. And so it's not a huge vertical. We're only talking, you know, 230, 240 feet, but we deal with what we have here and that's how we operate. Talk about the decision to put a quad over there, Jim. I'm looking at this map, this conceptual map you have on your website and it you have chair one listed as a triple chair. So I, I'd imagine that was just a placeholder. But were you thinking about a triple over there? How did you ultimately land on a quad chair? Yeah, we were thinking about a triple. But honestly, when looking at the cost of going from three to four, I mean, it was a no-brainer just to go up to four. And it, we're still, I mean, we're still limiting the capacity that we have here at the ski area. And so if we can get more people up the hill... So that more people can ski down the hill, then we can let more people in. So that was basically the thought process behind that. The dollar figure between the three-person and four-person chair was fairly insignificant. So we, we decided to go with the four. So this is going to be your second new chairlift in just three summers. And that's a huge deal for a Midwestern ski area of this size. And they were both, they're both Partech chairs. And I hosted Saddleback General Manager... Jim Quimby on this podcast a few months ago, and he also put in a new Partech quad last summer. And they're mostly a Doppelmayr fleet there at Saddleback, but he was just raving about this Partech machine. And, and obviously they don't make very many of those, but talk about how happy you are with Chair 2, which is the Partech quad you put in a couple of years ago for the listeners. And what made you decide to go Partech again for this second quad? Sure. Uh, no, we love working with Hagen over at Partech. So our other two four-man chairs are Borvigs, which they service. And so they are similar in build and in style. And we just like the simplistic design of that chairlift. And so when we decided to go with Partech for the first chair, working with them was spectacular. And it was a no-brainer to, to do the, the second one because of how the, just the ease of putting the, the first one up. And the support that you get from your manufacturer is huge. And if I give those guys a call, if I'm calling a guy's cell phone, the guy who is the owner of the company, and he's the one answering, and he's the one who's got the answers. It was just a, a, a real pleasure to work with. If we ever had any issue, you know, if it was big enough, they'd just come out. But there really wasn't any that, that we had. It was a real smooth process. So we're recording this on July 10th, Jim. What's that expansion look like today? How's the trail cutting going? How's the chair construction going? How's the snow making? Just lay it out for us. Yep. So trail cutting is done. We actually finished that last year. Right now we have the infrastructure for the chairs in ground. So all the the footings and concrete, that's all been poured, backfilled, putting up towers um, this month. And so then really after that, it's just, it's cabling and I mean, putting the chairs on isn't too much, but it's the electrical that's kind of takes a, a process because we, we do that all um, in-house here. We have the staff to do it. We have a master electrician on staff along with another journeyman. It's, it's not something we're not able to do. So the chair is coming along great. Lighting is going up shortly as well. We have everything here for that. We just need to put things in. And snowmaking as well. We have all the pipe here, and that's what's happening here this month as well is uh, the start of burying that pipe underground. And did you say you were going all automated in this expansion? Is that what you have on the rest of the hill or are you working toward that? We do not have that on the rest of the hill. We redid our pump house uh, the same year that we put that chairlift in so that we could go automated if we decided to or when we were able to. And so this leg will be. And we want it that way just so that A, we didn't have to have more snowmaking staff and B, so that we can, we want to get this expansion area open sooner than later. Like before this expansion, this summit area would be the absolute very last thing that we snowed. And now I wanted this to be going on immediately, like right when we are putting snow on the first two runs that I was talking about earlier, um, Nissi Bakken and Tanti Bakken off the chair and the, the rope toe. I want us to be making snow on this 
other area as well, because I want to get more stuff open quicker. Do you have a goal every year? Like you try to open the whole thing by Christmas or, or what's your goal? And is, is this going to be one of the first things you open, you're saying, or, or you just want it to open with everything else? We'll see how it progresses. I'd like it to be within the first 10, 12 runs that we open. Honestly, we try to get everything open by Christmas. Even though we can make snow early, we still don't have the power to, or the ability to make snow on every hill. We just don't have enough guns for that. And so it's basically back in the day, we're making snow on three to four hills or we're pounding one or two to get them open. So what this allows us to do is we're basically adding to our fleet the ability to make snow on these like four or five runs in addition to what we normally do. And are you going fixed guns on, on all the new stuff? Uh, fixed guns on many areas and a few mobiles on a couple areas. As far as how the expansion area will connect with the rest of the ski area, you know, I'll admit the day I was there, the summit area was closed and I skied down half rabbit and I sort of checked it out, but I didn't have the opportunity to ski over to the rope toe. Is there any changes that need to be made in that experience so that folks can get back and forth from chair two over to the expansion and then from the new chair one back over to the main lodge? Yeah, there'll be a lot of signage. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> uh, the half rabbit area, it will be your access. And so yes, we'll, we will be signing a lot more as to like chair one this way, etc. So you'll be taking, unless you want to take a big hike, you will need to go up one of the, the primary chairlifts, two or three, take half rabbit, and then you'll be able to mosey down over to the chair one summit area. And then same, you'll be going up chair one and getting on another run that will bring you back to that half rabbit area to bring you back. So you said something interesting earlier, Jim, and that was, you know, the skiers are investing in you, so let's invest in them. And, and I really like the way you frame that. What are you trying to achieve with this expansion? Are you trying to draw in more skiers and have more people at the ski area, or are you trying to have more terrain for the same number of skiers? You said you're still going to limit day tickets, but I don't know if you're taking that limit up because you will have more capacity, more trails, more lifts to be able to accommodate folks if you want to go in that direction. Yeah, the answer is both. We knew that we had a limit on the number of, well, we had an artificial limit that we set for ourselves that we would allow indoor, and we want to increase that limit. And the only way to do that is by increasing, you know, our scary capacity and getting more people up the hill. And so that was one of the primary goals, but absolutely is opening up more terrain for our general customer is very exciting. You know, a lot of people are excited about this. And even when we announced it three years ago, I think it's going to be a big boon for the ski area. Well, at least that's what we hope, right? Yeah. Are you adding more parking? Yes, we are. It's kind of like one of those things, right? Where you make this three-stage plan and it's all about the ski hill. And so come last spring, we're like, uh, hey, our parking lot is at capacity and we're planning on putting more people out here next year. Uh, we're going to have to do something about that. So uh, yes, we, we are increasing our parking capacity and that'll be ready by the winter as well. Where is that going to be? Are you expanding existing lots? Are you building a new satellite lot? What's the plan? Uh, we'll ex be expanding our existing lot further towards the west. If you're looking kind of at a map, it's kind of hard to see, but it's kind of following that road that goes back to town, back to Dresser. And we'll be adding about three acres of parking in that area. You know, the, there's a cool feature of the parking lot. And anyone who's been to Trollhagen has gone in the main entrance and seen the couple chairs that you have hanging up off that main sign there. What's the story there, Jim? Was that a, a project of your dad's? Was that something you put up? What, what are those chairs from? And, and is there a story to that sign? Uh, surprisingly, it's actually very recent that we put that up there. Oh, cool. That is uh, one of the towers from our original chairlift, chair, which was chair one, our first chair one, which was a two-person hall chairlift. And so when we removed that three years ago for our four-person Partech, we uh, decided to keep one of the towers and put one right there in our entryway. What we were planning on doing a, a while ago was to put like an old Tucker snowcat up there, but... You know, one thing led to another and we just never had, we didn't have time. And then this happened, like, oh, this would be even better because we can put lights off of it. It would be really unique coming into the ski area. And much, much like you said, uh, people have enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I, I really like it. I'll be sure to include a picture 
with the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com. You know, I when I did my Midwestern tour last winter, Jim, one of the ski areas I was really impressed with was Welch Village. And what I really liked about it is it was small vertical, about the same as yours, under 300 feet. And they just it just kept going and going and going. I mean, they must have had a dozen chairs and and you go back and they have this sort of back bowls area and, and it made it ski really big. And I, I skied there all day on a Sunday and, and I, I still didn't cover all the terrain. It was just, I thought, a terrific area. And it seems like you're sort of following a similar model here where you just keep building these pods out. Curious if, and, and I appreciate that you're swamped with this expansion right now, but do you own more land? Is it possible for you to expand beyond this in the future if the demand supports it? That's a great question, and it's getting pretty tight. Um, (laughs) We do own a lot of land around the area, but the slope of the hill, like behind us, is just flat. And so we may have the ability to get a little bit more off to the west side, but I'm not sure how feasible it would be because we would have to put a chairlift over there or some way to get back because it would be on the other side of our snowscaping hill. So we are uncertain. It, in my lifetime, this may be our only expansion. Again, two new chairlifts in three summers. I mean, that's, especially for a Midwest ski area, that's really amazing. So looking at chair three and chair four, those are, as you said, Borvig quads. They date to 1977 for chair three and 1976 for chair four. Any thoughts or desire to replace or upgrade those chairlifts, Jim? Or are you pretty happy with them as they are? We're really happy with those chairs right now. Our lift crew does an amazing job of maintaining those lifts. And Partech uh, still services everything we would need for those lifts. So as of right now, in fact, we're replacing a drive on one to, to modernize that. And as long as we can keep up with maintaining the lift, it was a solidly built lift. Absolutely. We have, we have no issues. So you'll have four quad chairs, which is great lift fleet. And then you have a whole bunch of rope toes. And I want to split these into two categories. So you have the high speed rope toes, which are super cool. And we'll get to those in a moment. And then in your beginner terrain, you have two of these sort of old style rope toes, which really brought me back to my first day of skiing on a rope toe very ineffectively, I'll say. As you look to your future at your beginner area and those rope toes, do you have any inclination to upgrade those to carpets? Are you happy with the toes? What's your thought on your beginning area? And I'm talking about uh, Mini Bakken and Gutenhaugen and Mika Bakken. Yeah. You know, our snow sports school is real split on that. <laughs> Some of the old old guys really like those ropes. Okay. <laughs> and we would like to put in a, a carpet at some point on one of those hills, probably not both, but uh, access to one of them or at least partial on one. So there are thoughts of doing that. So that could be a, a, certainly a future project that we have. Um, it's not off our radar at all. So we have been in talks about that as to a where we would put one if it would encompass the entire hill because they're pretty long beginner hills. And a lot of times our instructors don't like to use the entire hill. They like to get off a quarter of the way or a halfway off the hill instead of tri- like going up the whole thing. And so we're just trying to find the best way that we can install one without it necessarily being in the way. So it's a future project that we're looking at. So elsewhere on the hill, the you have three other rope toes by my count. Are you keeping that one in the summit area or are you taking that out once the quad is there? We'll be removing that. And so all of the terrain that is next to the rope toe, which is kind of like a little embankment quarter pipe, will all be usable. So that'll be removed. We may may install that elsewhere in future years or a part of it to add more uh, uphill capacity, like in another spot, like on the other side of Valhalla on Mulebakken or something of that nature, but nothing's written in stone there. Would that be for the 23-24 ski season? Or are you likely to put that in storage and make that call for 2024 to 25? Yeah, that's, that's future season speculation, if you will. It'd be 24-25 and on. So one thing I was really impressed by when I was riding around Minnesota and Wisconsin, and I've not seen this anywhere else in the country, and I ski all over, is these high-speed rope toes. And I've just never seen a lift like this that is so efficient yet so cost effective to install i mean rick schmitz who as you know runs little switzerland and in nordic mountain and the rock snow park he told me these things can move 
4,000 skiers per hour. And another operator told me that they only cost around 50 grand to put in. So talk about these high speed rope toes and just how much you like these lifts. Well, they're spectacular. I mean, they fill an exact need that, you know, that freestyle snowboard community is looking for and which is the number of laps that they can get in an outing. And so that is what we are looking to provide uh, that customer base. There are plenty of, believe it or not, of freestyle skiers and snowboarders that won't even take the chairlift up to go over to the terrain park. They will walk over to the rope toe, which is another, you know, they got to traverse the base of three hills instead of just going up and coming down. They'll just walk over. Jeez. And they'll be there all day. So we're talking, if it's a Saturday, it could be from 10, 11 in the morning until 8, 9 at night with a couple breaks. And they are just hitting those features constantly. So do you anticipate any backlash then for taking the rope toe out of the summit area? No, uh, we had stopped using that as a, like we had kind of put that area as a terrain park. Well, let me back up a little bit. So back in the day when we used that as a race hill, when the race season was over, we would turn it into a terrain park and it would get a pretty good traction for the month that we had it open. Or when the racers decided to stop using that area, we just turned it into a terrain park. And it just never got the usage that our Valhalla and Tantibakan terrain park get. Whether it's because it's, you know, a little bit steeper run or whether it's like way off to the side or if the kids didn't necessarily like the double rope. I will say that, you know, the tree coverage isn't necessarily as high over there. And so it does get, if you're there all day, it gets a little wind versus in the Valhalla terrain park, it's pretty secluded. So it didn't get as much coverage. So for the past number of years, we have just been putting less out in that area because it just wasn't really getting used. So I don't think that us removing that area there is going to have too much of a, of a blowback. You know, we do have a, or had kind of like a big air jump over in that area, but it's just not something that a large quantity of people in this area are looking for where they're looking for street type setups with rails and, you know, medium sized jumps. And so that's, uh, that's kind of what we cater to. So you have a nice parks culture and, and nice lifts to serve them for us mortals. We appreciate a good groom. And, and I have to say, I was really impressed with your grooming crew and maybe I was just there on a great day, but it wasn't great conditions. There'd been a refreeze overnight and I, I had pretty low expectations and I got out there and, you know, I went to, I visited 60 ski areas last year and Trollhagen, frankly, had top five grooming of every place I went to. I was really, really impressed. So what's your team secret? I know you said they're skiers and riders, but are you known for your grooming? Did I just hit it on the right day? Just break that down for us. Sure. I don't know if I should be telling you all the trade secrets, but <laughs> honestly, if you were to say like, what's the culture of our maintenance? And it would be to have honestly the best grooming that they've been on. Like that is their goal day in and day out. And I've seen to a point this year where we had a new guy come in and he had done a run or two. And one of our old, older guys, when I say older, you know, he's in his late twenties. He came in and said, no, 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 this is like, we, he shut the run. We shut the run down to redo it. Oh, wow. It matters a lot to us that we have great conditions because I mean, that's the point of the ski area. The skiers, the skier and snowboarders are coming out to ski and snowboard. If we're not giving them a pristine condition where they can do that, we're not doing our job. And so uh, we take a lot of time and effort every night to make sure that everything gets smoothed out that uh, we're putting the tillers down, down in the, you know, in the snow, turning it up and smoothing it out. Not, we're not, it's not a race. We're not looking to see who's the fastest. We're looking to see who can do it the best. Well, uh, pass my compliments along to your crew because they did a great job. You know, Jim, you had a really interesting setup there and I've not seen this elsewhere. And, you know, fraud is a problem everywhere, particularly with a scary like yours that uses old school wicket tickets, they may not necessarily get scanned on every run, or it's just hard to track everyone in the maze. So essentially, and I'm setting this up for the listeners, you get your lift ticket and you come down from the base lodge and there's a fence, just regular chain link fence surrounding the runs and or between you and the runs. And there's one gate and there's one guy standing there or a girl checking tickets and you go through and they scan you once and then you have access to the lifts. 
talk about, I thought that was really clever. And basically you'd have zero fraud unless someone borrows someone else's pass and you don't catch that. But talk about that setup and why you implemented that and how well that works for you to basically eliminate any sort of, of stealing. Sure. And that has been in place since before I can remember. Mm, so okay. it's a unique area in that. And if you're not seeing it, it might be hard to think. Well, it's like, wow, they fence the entire area, but it's mostly trees, right? So if you come down from our base area, you're walking down some stairs onto like kind of where the this fence is. But on this one side of the, of the fence is kind of some more of our buildings. And then on the other side of our of this fence is just like another building. And then off of all the sides, it's just trees and other things. So what you're really seeing is kind of just a small portion of the ski area. When you come down from the from the base lodge, and then when you go from the go through the gate, then you have uh, you know access to the whole thing. So some of these areas where it's just wide open to the parking lot, I don't know if it'd be possible necessarily for them to do unless they put up you know a ton of fencing so it's it's unique for us in that we're able to do that and yeah it, it's uh you know we still see fraud you know, here and there but i think it does a really good job of deterring people from theft i mean what, what sort of fraud do you see people just jumping over the fence or you know, <laughs> going honestly, through the trees so we do you may or may not know if you came out uh, later in the weekend we're open up late on fridays in fact we're open until three in the morning on fridays Oh, that's cool. And we sell out probably sometime around Wednesday night or Thursday afternoon, somewhere around there. And even though we've been selling out like this for the past three years, people will come in and want to go and unfortunately tell them, well, hey, you can buy tickets for next week, etc. But some people, uh, we've had more people jump the fence this last year. Like we had we had a mom come up to the ticket office and say, oh, I've seen a bunch of kids like jumping this fence over here. Like, Thank you very much. So we, we uh, made the fence a little bit bigger this year. Okay. <laughs> if people want to get in, they're going to get in. We just have to try to do our best to divert their attention. <laughs> All right, Jim, a couple more quick things for you here. What's with the uh, Bavarian theme? Was that your grandfather's invention? Was that there when your family bought the ski area? What can you tell us about that? Sure. It was actually here upon the origination of the area. So after they built it, they had like a contest. And I don't exactly know how it works, how the contest worked. But apparently the winner of the contest, uh, naming the ski area, was a school local school teacher who was from, I believe it was Norway or somewhere in the Scandinavian area. And she uh, wanted to name the hill Trollhagen, which is like hill home of the trolls. And so everything kind of came from that as far as theme goes when you're talking of just that Scandinavian culture, you know, theme that we have going going through here. Another, you know, neat ski area that does the same sort of thing is Tyrol Basin down in southern Wisconsin. Mm, okay. uh, you've been to them. They have a uh, very similar themed area to ours too. So a lot of Nords and Swedes up uh, across Wisconsin. That's cool. And they're, they're actually a fellow IndyPass partner. I've actually not been down there, but it's on the list for future trips. Last question for you here today, Jim. You know, we've seen with season passes over the past several years that if you buy them in the spring, a lot of ski areas will offer you free skiing that spring if you're a new pass holder. So if I bought my 23-24 pass in mid-February, they would offer me the rest of that season for free. Uh, at Trollhagen, and, and I've seen this actually at quite a few of your competitors in that Minneapolis-St. Paul greater Wisconsin, Minnesota area, you're adding a surcharge if new pass holders want to ski the rest of the season. So if you had someone buy a 23-24 season pass for Trollhagen in late February, early March, whenever you put them on sale, they could ski the rest of the 22-23 ski season, but it would be $75 for an add-on. So talk about that charge and what made you decide to go that route and how well that's worked out for you. Sure. So... Actually, I don't think we as in the metro area were necessarily aware that some other areas did it the way that you had just mentioned. So as far as I can recall, we were at Trollhagen, one of the few ski areas to start doing a spring pass. Most of the metro ski areas did their pass for the next year in the summer or in the fall. So in the year 2000, we decided that we were going to go with the spring pass because I believe one of our marketing directors saw that it went really well for someone out west. And so we did that. 
and we never necessarily had an inkling that, oh, hey, other ski areas offer the rest of the remainder of the year with that pass. So we've always had it, as far as I can recall, being kind of like attacked on. And at the time, it was like $50 or something like that for the rest of the season. And we really haven't had anyone have any issue with that because I think that's kind of all this area had known. I believe Wild does the same sort of thing as we do now. And some of the other metros may have changed, but it's kind of how the areas around here have operated. Unfortunately, I don't want to say unfortunately, for us, we actually stopped even offering the remainder pass of the last couple of years just because of capacity issues. So if you bought your pass, we would allow you to ski kind of like mid-March, but the pass sale started in February. But we just didn't have enough spots to add another... 500,000 people who decided that they wanted to come on, uh, we just didn't have the space. All right, Jim. Well, I with that, I'll let you go. I really appreciate your time today. I'm really excited about this expansion. I think it's a really big deal and really exciting for your ski area and skiers in the local area to have some new runs to try out next year. So best of luck with that. I really appreciate your time and I'll uh, look forward to, to talking to you again soon. Hey, thanks for talking with me. Appreciate it. That's Jim Rochford Jr., general manager and owner of Trollhog in Wisconsin. I love that. I love hearing stories of Midwestern might actualized on the bump. What a cool place. If you're floating through Minneapolis this winter, stop in. You will have a good time. Thank you all very much for listening. I've got a good lineup on the way for you, Midwest. Conversations with the leaders of Great Bear, South Dakota, Snow River, Michigan, and Luton, Minnesota are all on the calendar for the coming months. The very best way to get those episodes the moment they're live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.